The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 178 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in this show are my own and not in my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at the very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at CSHUB.com. So we got an exciting guest for you this evening, folks. The CEO of Kenna Security, Mr. Kareem Tuba, is going to be on the show with us. So Kareem's an experienced security technology executive who is really, really passionate about his innovation and leadership and solving complex problems. He was most recently the vice president of global security channels at Juniper Networks, and before that, he was the Vice President of Products and Strategy for SBU at Juniper. This was a billion-dollar security enterprise where he led product management, strategy, and technical marketing. And he also drove the turnaround of the Juniper security business. So Kareem has led products and strategy and marketing and security for both large companies and startups. He's a practitioner, folks. He knows this space very, very well. He's been on this show before. He's one of my favorite guests. He's also led the turnaround of... Ingrian Networks and drove the company to over $22 million in annual revenue in a 30-month window that led to the successful sale to SafeNet. So prior to that, he ran an $850 million global products and services group at Digital Island, which was acquired by cable and wireless. So Kareem brings a lot of proven leadership to the table. He, He brings a lot of innovation to the table. He's very focused on creating products that solve real world challenges that we're all having in the cybersecurity space. And he's also inspired by this very fast moving entrepreneurial culture that he's in right now. And he's focused on these pillars of innovation and focus. He's a frequent guest speaker on many different panels and events. He's been in several different media outlets, including Fox Business Network and and Bloomberg TV. And and of course, Task Force 7 Radio. So we're super jacked up to have him back on the show with us this evening. Kareem, welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio. Thanks a lot, George. Glad to be here. Hey, I'm really excited for you to be here tonight. I just want to kick it off right now. Like, what are you seeing in the industry? Like, what what is different? What's going on? What's the update from Kenna? Yeah, that's great. Uh, great place to start. Well, I, I appreciate you uh, having me back on. I always enjoy these uh, conversations because, you know, we tend to riff and go back and forth and uh, uh, have a lot of fun relative right. to sharing sort of the latest insights. So, a little, little sort of update and perspective on our end in terms of what's actually uh, been going on. Um, you know, as you know, we play in the risk-based vulnerability management space, and there's a, a, a lot of things specifically that are exciting to what's been happening in Kenna, but I'll start at sort of high level. I think over the course of the last couple of years, since last time we did one of these, you and I, what's been really interesting and happening is the application of data science and machine learning, practically speaking, in the world of security. You, it started, I'd say, probably about five, six years ago in the, word, in, in the world of marketing buzz and hype all around, hey, how do we use AI? How do we use ML? How do we use algorithms to improve security and efficacy? The last three to four years, we've really started to see that take hold. And that's because people are really starting to incorporate these algorithms very practically into the product and services that they deliver for these enterprises and mid-sized companies. Specifically at Kenna, 
you know, we've sort of been deep rooted in that over the course of the last decade. And our uh, chief data scientist, Michael Reutman, and our founder, Ed Bellis, have really sort of driven this perspective natively into the platform very early on. And over the last couple of years, especially in the area of risk-based vulnerability management and the remediation game, which is how do you figure out what vulnerabilities to fix first, we're starting to see some real change take hold because we not only deliver risk-based vulnerability management for customers, but we anonymize the data across all of our customers. And what we're starting to see is that it took companies historically uh, to remediate 50% of the instances in their systems last year was around 150 days. Now we're starting to see it compressed over the last couple of years, much more so. As a matter of fact, the last year that we measured this data, organizations are fixing 50% of the instances inside of a 30-day window. And more importantly, two-thirds of company or just shy of two-thirds of company reduced their vulnerability debt over time. And now we're starting to see that rise to about 72 to 73%. So we're starting to see real change take hold. Organizations start to prioritize their resources in a much more meaningful way. And a lot of that, if you peel back the layers, is really around the fact that people are starting to use real data in near real time to be able to make better and more informed decisions in security and in IT operations. So this is really interesting. I mean, that's, that's huge progress uh, over the last, you know, 24 months or so. Um, I think that you guys over at Kenna are really sort of the originators in risk-based vulnerability management. And we talked last time, it was such an interesting conversation, had so many comments and so many people, you know, reached out to me to tell me how much they learned from the episode. And I think uh, what you were doing is really one of the earlier proponents of this risk-based, you know, cybersecurity, you know, back in the day now. And you would think that would be in a long time, but even just years ago, where, do the field, where does the field stand now in terms of risk-based cybersecurity? Uh, what, what, do you think, <laughs> what do you think is going on right now in the industry? Yeah, well, um, look, we're, when we started Kenna, um, our, our, our founders and chief data scientists came up with this idea of risk-based vulnerability management, which quite candidly was pretty foreign and alien to people. Um, and, and, and we've really seen a, a shift in mindset over the course of the last few years, um, a move away from I've got to fix everything to I'm going to use data to tell me what to fix at the right time with what type of resources that are really going to move the needle on on efficacy and reduce risk. The problem is, is the same one you and I talked about last time, which is that there's just entirely way too many vulnerabilities to fix. Um, in reality, uh, the average enterprise will have anywhere between 30 to 40 million findings. Think about that for a minute. 30 to 40 million issues. That's huge. That they fix. huge. It's that's right. That's right. And so, and, and the rate of which these vulnerabilities manifest themselves um, is really sort of being driven by the fact that if you think about it, organizations, especially in, 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 in lieu of COVID, are moving faster to the cloud. That means there's more business pressure on them to build that next billion dollar application. That means there's more pressure on them to burst to the cloud, but then do so securely. And so this, this, this rate of, of adoption or uh, is really driving um, a, a broader attack surface in the area. And so What's really been happening is organizations are really starting to take notice of this and realize, look, you can't have this. I got to fix everything. And a good number of people that had that mindset are now starting to shift that mindset. And what we're seeing across our customer base, which, by the way, typically tends to be large enterprise and enterprise customers, is they're getting faster and much more efficient, not just at responding to the attacker, but becoming much more proactive and understanding their attack surface. And then marshalling the right resources to be able to fix the things that matter the most that move the needle. And a lot of this, back to the point you made earlier, is really sort of rooted in uh, uh, giving people data. You will um, uh, see that we did a partnership with a team, uh, Jay Jacobs and Wade Baker from the Science Institute, to really help us take the data that we have from our customers that's anonymized and validate the work and then repurpose it in a way that makes uh, organizations much more apt and willing to take the necessary action. And that allows us to produce data-driven research that allows us to then make our customers more educated and use the data to fold it back into the products and services that they roll out inside of their organizations. 
So you put out this research often and you get quite a bit of interest every time you do so. I think you've published about twice a year now. I think you have about six volumes of this prioritization, the prediction uh, publication so far. Can you give us uh, and our audience a summary of the key insights from this series to date? Because I think there's, you know, there's so much interest in what you guys do. Um, and it's really relative to people, you know, increasing their defense and death posture. So could you, could you give us sort of a, a summary of it? Yeah, sure. Um, so l- look, we've been at the data game for quite a while, uh, specifically related to exploitation and vulnerabilities in general. Um, and we're really proud, as we talked about earlier, to partnered with the Scientia Institute because our chief data scientists and our science team along with Wade and Jay at, uh, at Scientia, do a ton of good work. And you're right, we put out two uh, part prioritization and prediction reports per year. Uh, we're on volume six. And I'll give you sort of a, just a quick recap of what we've put out. The first one was sort of groundbreaking because we looked at the whole gamut of vulnerabilities to try to figure out how readily exploitable they are and what we can find out. And what we found was that less than 25% of vulnerabilities have a developed exploit. And more importantly, 2% of the published vulnerabilities have uh, observed exploits in the wild. That was sort of the ground information that we started with in terms of understanding um, what's happening and what's actually being exploited in the wild. In volume two, we tested that model and we found that only 5% of the vulnerabilities that exist in enterprises are actually exploited based on our customer our customers. So we took the data from volume one, we mapped it to the customer data to find that only 5% of the vulnerabilities. That really led to us building the prioritization and algorithmic engines that allow customers to focus on the things that matter the most. In volume three, it was really fascinating. We started to study the remediation behavior of hundreds of organizations. And what we found is that at any given organization, regardless of size, they can only address about one out of every 10 vulnerabilities a month. So think about that. That means some of the best performing organizations have the remediation capacity to only handle about 10%, upwards of 15% of the problems that they have today. In many ways, that was also informative because it really sort of underscored not just how big the problem is, on the security side, but it really sort of bridged the gap to IT and really started to measure what's the remediation capacity. Because remember something, George, when you find problems, more often than not, when you're fixing vulnerabilities, you're often beholden to people in IT, application security, DevOps, organizations that are not typically owned by, uh, by, uh, by the security tool. Volume four, Uh, was really much more quantitative data. And this was also really cool. We discovered that companies that are using the kind of risk score compared to old arcane mechanisms like CVSS actually patch things at about 15% faster. Mm. And that led us to understand where the patchwork is going in volume five, which really helped us focus and understand that there was a tremendous amount of work that was going on in underlying operating systems, Adobe, things like Windows and Mac OS, and the majority of the vulnerability work was happening in that area. And the latest one we recently released, which is volume six, that one actually looked very, very specifically last year in 2019 at 473 vulnerabilities. And the biggest takeaway was that the exploit code predating vendor patches gives attackers about a 47-day advantage over defenders related to those 473 vulnerabilities. The insights really highlights the fact that we call what we call responsible exposure, which is basically reinforcing how critical it is for researchers to work with vendors to ensure that people can remediate new vulnerabilities that are delivered and where we can have a much more tighter integration between what the research community is doing and what the vendor community is doing to help protect these large organizations and governments. And we're going to continue to drive these uh, reports twice a year. Uh, We found two really useful things in them. First, they shed a tremendous amount of light on how to actually practically, back to the the first place we started the conversation, how to actually use algorithms with vast amounts of data to really be able to help organizations take the right actions. And then secondly, they allow us to then begin to use that data uh, to really make people understand the context, not just within their organization, 
but across organizations. Because one of the biggest things that organizations start to do when they move to a risk-based approach is they start to understand things around benchmarks. Not only how are they doing internally and how are groups doing against each other, but how are they doing against other industry peers? Because when you go up to boards, that's the thing that ultimately matters. Not only how are you doing within your organization, but how are you doing against the broader industry to set the context that's so so very much needed. So this is a lot of ground to cover in, in, in just the few minutes that we have, even though we do do a whole hour show here, unlike a lot of the other podcasts, but particularly some of the data that shows how the work is being done and how efficient and effective these organizations are at vulnerability management. If you, if you sort of zoom out and look at the big picture, what does it mean for the average enterprise? I mean, what's the bottom line for them? What's changed for them over the last few years? Yeah, so I mean, look, there's so much written and documented and podcasted and spoken about on panels regarding to the threat landscape. And so sometimes when, when looking at these sort of bigger picture issues, it's, it's, it's good to sort of step back and talk about or think about where we were. So when we first launched our product in 2014, there was sort of, you know, nonstop news about attackers and attack and hacks. And seemingly that has just increased every year. But back then, the industry was spending $46 billion on security back in 2014. Last year, we spent north of $120 billion, right? Mm. And so it's clear if you step back that cybersecurity executives of large organizations are continuing to make massive amounts of work. And on average, they're spending a tremendous amount of money securing their entire infrastructure and their assets across the board. Yet, and what they're doing is they're expanding the broader footprint, right? And they're investing in the tools and technologies to do so. One of the things that we've seen, even though we've seen organizations actually get better at fixing the things that matter, we've seen them finding more things to fix as well. So remember earlier I talked about uh, you know, 30 to 40 million vulnerabilities found. If you look at the data six, seven years ago, that me, uh, the data was really around 15 to 20 million findings. And so what's happening is we're getting better precision, precision, we're getting better fidelity, we're getting better at fixing the things that matter the most. We're also getting better at discovering more. And that as an industry puts us in a much better position because on one end of the spectrum, you're really starting to get a much broader view into your attack surface, into all the nooks and crannies and ways that attackers can come in. But then at the same time, we're using the data to become much more efficacious with a higher degree of precision and what to fix. And the combination of those two things has really enabled us to uh, uh, drive value to organizations, but more importantly, has enabled enterprises to really drive difference in terms of the way they operate on a day-to-day -day basis. All right, folks, we've got to transition into a commercial break here, but stick with us. Lots more to come here on Task Force 7 Radio. So, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll be immediately connected to the extended TF7 family. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring this show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email me directly at george at tf7radio.com. That's george at tf7 with the number 7 radio.com. We're going to pause with some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, the CEO of Kenneth Security, Mr. Kareem Tuba. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. 
By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Signet, S-I-N-E-T. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the CEO of Kenna Security, Mr. Kareem Tuba. So, Kareem, you know, I, and we often hear about, you know, companies getting their butts kicked in the industry, uh, in the cybersecurity space. It seems like every other day there's something in the news um, that's, you know, a, a bad story about some kind of compromise or anything. But we also hear that, you know, companies, some companies are winning, winning at cybersecurity. They're spending money, they're getting resources, they're doing a bunch of different things. But, but what does it really mean to win? When we say someone's winning in cybersecurity, what does that mean to you? Yeah, it's a super, super, super question. Um, you know, th- there are different tenets of winning, right? You can win the war against the cyber criminals. You can win the war of hearts and minds internally. You can win the technical war, right? And, and all these have sort of very different dimensions that leverage technology to be able to do so. So I'll give it to you through what we're observing in, in, in enterprises and, and large-scale enterprises in particular, right? We talked a little earlier about, you know, this, this move to risk-based vulnerability so that you can get very precise around what to fix, how to fix it, and marshal the right resources. That's a huge win organizationally or actually even technically because organizations are drowning with data back to this 30 to 40 million vulnerabilities and findings that they're spending all this technology finding all these problems. And then being able to be laser focused on the things that matter is a huge win because our data shows that organizations do not have the capacity to fix everything. So that's a win. The other win and the one that's probably a little bit more interesting is a win relative to the human element. This goes back to something we said earlier. Consider this for a minute. If I'm somebody in the security team, I'm using scanners, I'm using pen testing, I'm using application tools, I'm using technologies that help me find vulnerabilities in my network, in my operating systems, in my open source libraries, and my application stacks. If I think about the remediation aspects of that, I then I'm beholden to IT, DevOps, and security teams to actually fix those things. And 
oftentimes when you come into organizations, at least historically, there's this tremendous amount of tension. Because if I'm the one who's responsible for fixing, for finding 30 to 40 million things, then I run across the hall to my counterparts and tell them, hey, there are 30 to 40 million problems. That creates a lot of tension. So in this particular case, when you precisely tell people what to do, that's a huge win. Because what you're effectively doing organizationally is that you take an extremely tense environment and you turn it into one of collaboration. And that level of win creates a, a team that's got a common goal. They've got a common set of objectives. There's no more argument about the underlying data because it's pretty empirical in its value to really drive what priority looks like. And because you're moving to a risk-based approach, you could actually start to communicate that left, right, down, and up to the executive suite because now people put targets in place and there's you know, sort of uniformity about sort of the common good and the common goals across the board. And in a world that is constantly being bombarded, in a world that is constantly reacting to the adversary, these are huge and monumental wins that I think the security organization can build upon. So this is really interesting. And I talk about this all the time in terms of, you know, what is operations and what is not operations in, in the realm of cybersecurity. And you talk about operationalizing this process. And that's really interesting to me because I think a lot of time we have maybe non-operational personnel running operations functions and that's when some of these problems uh, seem to present themselves. So it seems like a lot of the security work is, you know, chasing and putting out these fires, especially in ops. Um, it's constant, like, you know, crisis here, crisis there, and everything's a priority. And you said something before, you know, let's fix what matters. <laughs> that's really, that's really a, a, you know, a concept that I think people should grasp because I'm really on board with that. Let's fix, fix what matters. So can you walk me through what it means to operationalize vulnerability management and how you would do it? Yeah, I'll give you a couple of different perspectives here. Um, first, at a high level, you know, what we found is most vulnerability management programs, when we walk into an enterprise today, um, are essentially as effective as rolling the dice, right? Because and, and that's what the data tells us, right? In, in average, the enterprise, just five, having said that earlier, that 5% of vulnerabilities have exploits developed against them. That means that organizations don't know which 5% in their environment have the same effectiveness and candidly, what that equates to, it's pure random luck. By looking at vulnerability program through the lens of risk and using data, organizations can not only establish objective metrics to, to, to track against, but actually turn the tide on high-risk vulnerabilities. So this allows them, as you think about operationalizing in the early maturity stages, what we typically see then is customers just trying to reduce the most risk. But eventually, companies start relying heavier on underlying scoring systems because they start to trust the decisions that they've made. Now, in terms of directly answering the question, how do you operationalize vulnerability management? It really is multifaceted. First, what we're seeing is you have to have a pretty comprehensive set of tools and capabilities to discover the vulnerabilities. Um, back in the olden days, sort of late 90s, early 2000s, when scanners sort of raged on the scene and the big three, Qualys, Rapid7, and Tenable came, on, came online, organizations were barely scratching the surface. As a matter of fact, most organizations in vulnerability management were really doing it to check the compliance box. Am I scanning PCI assets? Am I scanning assets that I deem critical to the business? The tooling for discovering vulnerabilities has just exploded. As a matter of fact, if you look at uh, some of the leading enterprises that we do work with, they'll have 10, 12, 13 different techniques with which they're finding vulnerabilities. So it's really about expanding the overarching uh, uh, tools that you have uh, to ensure that people uh, across the board have all the tools to actually be able to drive uh, the discovery of all these vulnerabilities. Secondly, what you have to do to uh, operationalize vulnerability management is gain context. So, a vulnerability on a system in isolation tells me about the, tech, the technologies needed to thwart the vulnerability, but it tells me nothing about the context of the asset system or network or application that the vulnerability is on. And not all vulnerabilities are equivalent in value. 
it really is dependent on a number of factors. A, what is the criticality of the asset or application that vulnerability is on? B, what is the underlying data? C, do I have some form of compensating control? All those kinds of things that are not oftentimes provided by the security team provide a tremendous amount of context. So the ability to take that information and contextualize these millions of vulnerabilities have a heavy weight into the operationalization of risk-based vulnerability management. And then thirdly, and probably most importantly, is the remediation workflow and accountability aspect of, of, of operationalizing a program. It's irrelevant if you understand your entire attack surface and all your vulnerabilities and understand how to prioritize if you don't have a clear, concise, and accountable measure for not only how you drive remediation, but how you actually measure that the remediation that you're invoking across the organization is actually making a meaningful difference. And that requires a tremendous amount of collaboration with constituents outside of the security organization. Um, If you're going to move and operationalize to a risk-based vulnerability management program, it's a team sport. That's what people should be thinking about. It's not just for security. So all these people, all these different teams, they have different org structures, they have different reporting lines, they have different budgets. You know, how do we operationalize this kind of business process? And I want to say it is a business process. People don't use that term a lot of times in cybersecurity. Uh, they want to say, you know, this, this is some kind of technology process, but it's a business process. And how do we do that? How does it filter down through the rest of the organization so everybody's on the same page? Yeah, yeah, we've 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 watched that uh, uh, the maturity of that. We have this thing at Kenna called the uh, maturity model, um, which is you know different people, uh, different organizations um, have a di- candidly different industries are at various areas of the maturity curve. And it's one of the actual, actually, it's one of the things that we look at very carefully when we engage an enterprise customer. And the reason that's important is because this is not just about technology. This is about people, process, and technology. If you're gonna operationalize the business process, you have to make the according, the uh, uh, commensurate process changes. Um, You know, technology is only as good as the process changes that are supporting it and only as good as the people that are actually uh, driving it. Now, going back to what we said earlier, right? So if, if, if we buy and believe the premise that a small percentage, call it two to 5% of vulnerabilities are likely to emerge as legitimate threats, security teams traditionally come to IT with the broader list of, of, of things that they actually have to do. And this is a, a huge waste of time for IT. And so changing the strategic focus of the IT organization to move away from pure volume to a common form of risk that is accepted and bought off by IT is at the heart of operationalizing the business processes. So what does that mean? It means A, collaborating with security on what the underlying data and telemetry tell you. It's B, agreeing that there's a sort of ground truth set of data sources that the organization is using to make decisions. It's C, retrofitting the processes wholeheartedly. And then D, it's ensuring that you have a common metric in this form risk that allows the organization to really normalize around a single set of of sources. Now, what's interesting is once you get this right between security and the various constituents of IT, and I'm using, George, I'm using IT in the most broadest context, but if you double click on IT, it means people that manage operating systems, yeah. uh, like Windows, Linux, uh, uh, and Macs, people that manage the network, people that manage uh, uh, the DevOps tools in the cloud, and then people that write application code, right? So those are, those are the sort of four constituents you have to collaborate with. Once you've built that collaboration and use the ground truth telemetry and common data sets and the process changes have been invoked and you've normalized around uh, the concept of risk, you can actually take that data and start to um, talk about it to the entire organization. And that is immensely powerful because you move away from talking about these vulnerabilities in isolation or the fact that you have 40 million vulnerabilities, which is interesting. But when you tell somebody, hey, I have 40 million and now I have 35 million, they're left, we've seen they're left scratching their heads going, okay, well, is that making a difference? 
But when you normalize it around risk because you've taken all the other contextual components, then what you can do is begin to understand two things. A, how much are you reducing the risk by? And are you getting to your ultimate target risk score? And that is at the heart of how you operationalize this across the technology stack, but also across business processes as a whole. So walk me through it. Walk me through how we use this data science and this general approach that you just described to help empower CISOs in many different critical infrastructures, right? Uh, And their security teams. Like, so I want to understand how everyone, you know, is going to use the data to come to accomplish a common mission. Because this is one of the biggest problems in my mind. Um, Because a lot of times the people that are discovering the vulnerabilities obviously aren't the people who are patching them. It's a totally different team. And you just went over some of the different technical teams that are involved. How do we get this done? Yeah, look, we've seen some really interesting things with regards to CISOs um, and how they're driving sort of a different behavior perspective top down. Because remember, the CISOs, you're, you're very right, George, don't own the remediation teams, right? They own the security teams, which may own 10 to 15% of the remediation. I mean, in all fairness, technically, a security team can do things like quarantine. They can do things like respond and uh, put a compensating control in place. But we have found those types of of paths uh, when a vulnerability is discovered or when a vulnerability is being popped in near real time are really sort of the exception, not necessarily the rule. And there's a, there, there's a few things uh, in, in, in the world of the sort of executive suites and CISOs that's, that, that's actually been fascinating to have a front, so front row seat to and watch. Because what we're enabling really at the end of the day is the CISOs to have a much more uh, collaborative and strategic conversation with fellow executives up and down into the organization. And that's actually improving board level communications as well. I, you know, we have the good fortune because we work in with large, with enterprise and large enterprise companies. I have the good fortune personally to have some conversations with security executives and CISOs uh, on a relatively frequent, uh, frequent basis. And oftentimes when we walk in, depending on the maturity of an organization, everybody's rallied around volume. Right. And as one CISO recently told me, he said, look, I cannot go to another executive meeting or another board meeting, either being asked about a single vulnerability that one of the board members saw in the newspaper or um, being asked to report on how many vulnerabilities I have in my organization volumetrically. 32,532,635 as an example. And then, and then be told what my number is now. And is that getting better? Because it, those conversations, we're told, go off the cliff really fast because there's no context provided, right? And so what happens is when you get the entire organization to buy into a risk-based approach, I mean, think about it, right? Executives and board members understand through the common lexicon of risk that language, right? Boards are used to talking about risk all the time. Um, executives are used to talk, talking about managing business risk all the time. Suddenly, what you've done is you've created this layer where the people who are very technical and on the ground that are using the tools and technologies and data to drive risk buy into the underlying data that's actually moving the organization to a risk score. And then at the same time, you empower the CISO and the security executives to actually use the same risk score that the technical people are using to actually start to communicate it to the business. And this does a couple of things. First, there's now a common language everybody uses. And there's zero argument, zero argument about how to get there. But more importantly, and we, I mentioned this slightly earlier, is that it does allow you to now all of a sudden help them change the conversation and put goals in place, right? I'll give you a couple of anecdotal data points of things that I found that have been extremely interesting that have been done by a couple of organizations, just to give you a sense of the power of what can be done organizationally when you get this right. The names of the companies will, 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 um, will remain irrelevant uh, or will, will be anonymous, of course, but you know, one is a large financial services organization and the other one is a, a, a large uh, uh, insurance organization, both public companies. One had an initiative called Get to Green. And the Get to Green initiative was an initiative where they moved to a risk-based model and they said, look, we are going to target a capability or a number um, that uh, gets us to the place that we want. And we're going to have a death march until we get to it, right? 
And it was a rallying cry across the organization. And they ultimately got to it. And they got to it by enabling a risk-based approach, getting everybody in the organization to buy off on it. And then thirdly, communicating it maniacally up and down the stack. And because you're using the same underlying empirical data, there was broad-based support to get it done. Now, it took a while to get that support, but that was key to it. The other one was, was something that I was uh, told about by CISO that I found extremely interesting. And it goes back to that collaboration between security and IT, and remember, the broader IT construct. But also, um, it goes back to the fact that this is a, a lot of this making this successful is about people. And so, sometimes people are incented in different ways. And so, this particular executive actually used security dollars to fund IT bonuses to get them to a level or exceeding a level of a risk score. So they said, because the way organizations are typically organized on the IT side is you have a team that fixes all network issues. You have a team that fixes all Windows issues. You have a team that fixes all Linux issues, a team that fixes all Java issues. That's the organizational. It's not just this big, huge IT organization. It's, you know, sort of different constructs that are aligned with technology uh, uh, stovepipes, if you will. And so, what they did is they put a program in place that said, look, if you can meet or exceed a risk threshold, the group will get a bonus or will get an incentive of some kind. And, the, and what allowed them to do that was moving to a common risk-based model that everybody was, was uh, rallied around because ultimately, the name of the game was efficacy. That's what this particular CISO was concerned about. So it's interesting. I think, you know, if you can get everybody to speak from a common uh, lexicon of risk and everyone's speaking the same language, it makes everything easier. It makes communication easier and it gets everybody on the same page. You know, you're talking about boards and you're talking about other cybersecurity you know, executives and when they're talking to the boards and the CEO and so on. Um, everyone's sort of who's been in that position knows that once in a while, a board member or someone, in, uh, a high-ranking uh, member of the firm might say, hey, I saw this really scary vulnerability just hit the, the, the media and they just had this really high CVSS vulnerability that's out there and they've read about it and then they come and they ask about it. What, what do these scores really mean and, and how does it fit into the conversation we were just having? Yeah, it's, uh, it, 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 it's a great question. Um, yeah, <laughs> I chuckle only because of uh, conversations that I've had with people that said, oh my God, if I have another vulnerability show up on the front page of a Wall Street Journal and I get, you know, weekend emails from my CEO <laughs> and from board members, right? All, everybody's the cybersecurity executive because they Wikipedia a particular CVE 2020-3205, right? Or some, some, uh, some numerical derivation thereof. Um, look, I mean, uh, th- th- this is a real thing. Uh, you know, on one end of the spectrum, uh, it's, it's, it's comical, but another end of the spectrum, it just gives you little visibility into some of the challenges that uh, security executives and CISOs actually have to deal with. Um, as you very well know, and I'm sure many of your listeners know, um, you know, security is being taken very seriously, especially by public companies now, right? There are people on public boards that now have to be the board member that's effectively responsible for security. Um, and so this topic comes up quite a bit. Uh, and, and we do see a lot of these things come up when there's a big zero day that hits the news. And, and if you step back and look at it, um, historically, things like CVSS or Common Vulnerability Scoring System um, was a really useful tool, but it didn't really measure risk. In fact, CVSS actually has a section on their webpage about warning people that it's not an actual risk measurement, right? Because it's a technical score on how easy it is to execute um, and exploit a particular vulnerability. And so, um, by really allowing the organization to not only discover the vulnerabilities that they need to, but more importantly, overlay the context. This goes back to what we talked about earlier. The context of the asset, the context of the application, the context of exploitability, the context of the data that tells you, is there an exploit and is it being weaponized inside of malware? All of that context creates a richness. That richness then allows you to weave a narrative. And that narrative with the context allows you to then communicate with board members and other executives and be able to answer that question. And you can answer it technically by telling people, hey, 
This is the nature of the vulnerability. This is the nature of the attack. That's the initial part of the story and the narrative that security executives were told have to tell their CEO and ultimately their board members. Because people are, depending on the nature of the organization, technically minded. Then you extend the narrative and you basically tell them, look, yes, this is a vulnerability. Yes, it's a high profile vulnerability. But these are the places we see it in our infrastructure. And based on the different assets and applications and underlying data that are sitting on those assets, assets and flowing through those applications, this is the risk associated with the organization. And the risk may be different in different places across the organization. And then thirdly, the, the, the sort of the, the third leg of the stool for the narrative that you have to weave is this is what we're actually doing about it, right? And so when you have a risk-based vulnerability management program, it not only helps you for all the operational and technical reasons we talked about earlier, but it actually helps you be able to very quickly determine the narrative that's needed to have a substantive conversation with executives. Not one about volume, not one about where we have this vulnerability, but the whole spectrum and gamut. Where do we have it? What's our exposure? What is the nature of the vulnerability technically? And how exposed are we as a result? What is the risk to us overlaying all the business context asset, uh, aspects of the application and assets? And then what are we doing about it? And that broad-based story is the way that security executives can then navigate the quagmire that they're in when they're being asked um, to very quickly respond about something that is extremely public and they're getting pressures from all over the place. The last comment I'll make is, remember that the CISO job, um, as interesting as it can be, is also um, sometimes quite challenging, right? And I can see this because they have to understand and keep up with technology. They have to manage teams. They have to continuously ask and get additional budget, right? And they're oftentimes seen as a cost center, right? They're not building an application to help support the next billion dollar application for a bank. They're actually a cost center to ensure that the application is secure. And then they have to manage up, over, and down, right? And that's a, that's a pretty daunting job because there's sort of different aspects of, of, of the role that you have to tap into. Um, and then having data really helps you at the right time to be able to manage across the organization and really drive not just common goals, but the right narratives at the right time. All right, we've got to take a short break to hear from our sponsors, folks, but don't go away. We'll be right back with our special guest, the CEO of Kenneth Security, Mr. Kareem Tuba. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 Hacker Innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., 
Cynet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Cynet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Cynet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Cynet, S-I-N-E-T. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the CEO of Kenna Security, Mr. Kareem Tuba. So, Kareem, you know, we're talking about scores and we're talking about proper context. You know, you, you hear about these PowerPoints with no context that are just like missiles, you know, they're just like deadly weapons, right? How do companies know whether they're doing good, whether they're doing bad, or not even making a difference? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. This is where the research has probably uh, uh, most influenced our product. Um, a few years back, uh, we created a metric called peer benchmarking, and that uses the company's classification codes to show how their overall risk score is actually comparing to their industry peers and even uh, broader companies. So if I'm using a risk-based vulnerability management model, I can not only understand how I'm improving score internally, I can, and I'm a bank, I can understand how I'm doing against other banks and if I'm something like a retailer, um, I can not only compare to other retailers, but I can also say, hey, I know banks spend a lot of money on security and I know financial institutions uh, typically are the gold standard. So I'm going to compare myself and set benchmarks, set future targets against not just other retailers, but actually the gold standard of government or the gold standard of financial services institutions. So this benchmarking uh, is extremely useful. And if you think about it, it helps, helps set the stage for not just where you are today, but where you're going. Because remember, George, managing risk is a journey, right? It's not just a destination. You'll effectively never get to the promised land. It's a series of steps, procedural changes, and investments that you continue to make in the fullness of time. And allowing you to have an understanding of uh, through the lens of benchmark, then allows you to communicate. And back to the board discussion we had earlier, it also allows you to provide the context. Because one of the biggest questions we get from CISOs after they have board conversations and they talk about, oh, I reduced my risk score from 650 down to 520. The board still says, so what does that mean contextually? Well, the answer to that is, guess what? Across all the financial services organizations, the peer benchmark is typically 480. So we're now only 40 points off our 480 target. And our goal is to get to 400 to exceed the target. That peer benchmark capability allows you to provide a tremendous amount of context. Now, the other thing that we did is we built out risk-based SLAs in our product. And this was the first of its kind in the space that we operate. And it allows companies to get to a higher maturity stage for risk-based vulnerability management. Risk-based SLAs effectively allow you to set SLAs, not just in terms of the traditional world. Oh, okay, if it's a, this type of risk score, I'm going to have a 30-day SLA, a 60-day SLA, 90-day SLA. But they allow you to set uh, SLAs dynamically based on either benchmarks. So have me fix high-risk vulnerabilities as fast as my peers, faster than my peers. We even have a capability to do it as fast as attackers because, of course, we know how quickly attackers are exploiting vulnerabilities and the weapons 
and the weaponization of those vulnerabilities inside of malware and automated exploits that they're driving. Um, the last thing I would tell you to provide context is that we realized uh, probably about um, a couple of years ago that the underlying data that's embedded into our platform is data that we should start to actually, uh, is data that actually gives you so much context and so much value for the context that it is to benefit of not just Kenna, but candidly, the industry as a whole and customers to take that data and to weave it into other platforms. And so we launched a product in uh, 2020 called VI, Vulnerability Intelligence, or Kenna.VI. Um, and that allows us to take the data that historically has driven the platform and is really sort of the pedigree of Kenna and really make it an available through a data feed and API built into other systems and platforms to really help organizations uh, provide the proper context, not just within the risk-based vulnerability management platform of Kenna, but inside of security operations and open up other use cases. So this is really good to hear, and I'm, I'm really a proponent of the intelligence-led constant learning model. And there's a lot of constant learning here. You set up these mediums to sort of learn and guide, you know, test, repeat sort of cycle. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and when you break it down like that, I think it's going to make a lot of sense to a lot of other people too. Look, last question. What's next for Kenneth Security? What do you guys got on the horizon? Yeah, uh, more things to do and ideas than capacity to do it, right? I mean, that's always the, that's always <laughs> the challenge in our world, right? Right, right. We're, uh, you know, and by the way, just, to, just on a quick note, um, a side note, and then I'll directly answer the question. Um, I think one of the best parts of the journey we've been on is we've got a great set of customers and part of being a great customer is making the vendor uncomfortable, right? Um, it's about, it's about customers becoming forcing functions to drive us to do things better and drive us to do things faster. And, you know, if any of our customers are listening, not only thank you, but more importantly, keep doing that, right? I mean, it is, the, it is probably one of the most important things that organizations can do with vendors um, because it really allows us to ensure that we're driving the right kinds of things across the organizations to maximize the value. Now, with that sort of as the backdrop or context, so what are we doing? So, th there, there's a number of things. So, first of all, using, back to the point I made earlier, using the data outside of Kenna is extremely important. And case in point, last year, we announced an OEM partnership with VMware Carbon Black. So, we took that VI data and built it into, built the data through API calls into the Carbon Black uh, platform as part of the security team within VMware. That allows them to not only find vulnerabilities faster, but more importantly, it allows them to understand the risk and all the metadata associated with the risk so that they can prioritize natively within the Carbon Black platform itself, right? Carbon Black and VMware, after VMware's acquisition of Carbon Black, has a large, large number of customers. Patrick Morley, who's our exec sponsor over there and the prior CEO of, of Carbon Black, has been great about uh, building a lot of capabilities, not just natively, but bringing in third parties to really add values to his customer base. And that's one of the things that we're going to continue to do and evolve is how do we use the data that we've mined over the last decade and the algorithms that we've built that are patented and really drive value, not just within the Kenna platform, but abroad, across the broader ecosystem. Number two is really continuing the focus on going up stack into the application security world. Um, a lot of the vulnerability history and data that we found were really around vulnerabilities inside of operating systems, inside of things like Java, inside of networks. But more and more, uh, organizations are starting to build ephemeral applications and are starting to focus on discovering applications inside of their uh, application constructs. So this is now finding applications in source code that they wrote or open source, uh, open source code that, they've, uh, that they're leveraging. It, this is a huge, huge, huge and growing area. And the reason is because companies are starting to repurpose uh, open source code. As a matter of fact, we recently did an analysis that showed over 90% of the, of, of the code that organizations are using um, is actually not code that they wrote themselves. It's using Java, open source Java libraries, open source Apache libraries, things of that nature to help build uh, an application much faster. 
And as a result, all of those things, gems inside of Ruby instances, um, actually have vulnerabilities and people have to detect them and are starting to develop uh, uh, and deploy technologies like SNCC to actually be able to do that. And being able to come in and add that contextual layer so that you can have a full stack view of risk across the board from what's happening in your network to your what's happening into your uh, uh, operating systems all the way through up to the application layer is extremely important for us in an area of investment. And then lastly is the move into the cloud. We talked about this, I think, at the outset, which was you have organizations bursting into the cloud, starting to leverage cloud more. Systems are no longer traditional systems. They're not even VMs anymore. They're ephemeral systems. They're being spun up and down all the time. So how do you how do you find the vulnerabilities in a highly uh, uh, elastic environment and how do you remediate them? Because you're no longer going to be remediating in the cloud on a per host basis, right? Because drift doesn't really happen. You got to go back to the base image and integrate with a different set of tools and frameworks and processes to actually be able to drive the remediation factor that you want to drive. And most importantly, in the cloud, you're going to have less and less interaction with people and you're going to want to operate um, much more programmatically. And that creates an entirely different paradigm, still filtered through the lens of risk, but much more automated inside of native tooling. Kareem, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate it. I can't wait to have you back. We got to get you on some panels. It's going to be fun. Awesome, George. I always appreciate the time and the banter. All right, bro. Thanks. I appreciate it. Okay, folks, it's time to go. But before we do, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.